So if you had to choose, which would you prefer? Unlimited wealth or immortality? What if I told you they are directly related and you could have both? First off, we would need the Philosopher's Stone. Yep, just like out of Harry Potter. An item that turned other metals into gold and granted you eternal life. You may have also heard of the Book of Aquarius. Yep, just like that old classic rock song from 1969. This book contains the instructions, however, to creating the Philosopher's Stone. Although the process can take years, the ingredients are common, and the process is really simple. I'd guess you'd have everything you need in your home right now. But you see, the Book of Aquarius is made up of many other books, older, ancient texts and teachings, a collection of lost knowledge, if you will. One of these contributors from such is an ancient artifact, the Emerald Tablet, which contains not only the secret of immortality, but literally the secrets to everything in the entire universe. This knowledge has been around for centuries, but has been hidden away to only a select few. Because, well, can you imagine everyone living forever and turning stuff into gold? You see, this knowledge was acquired by medieval alchemists from the Arabs a thousand years ago, and they got it from the Egyptians 2,000 years before that. But the Egyptians, they got their knowledge 36,000 years before that from the most sophisticated society of all times, the Atlanteans. Join us tonight as Bill and I share our unique art of storytelling on these ancient, mysterious, and hidden subjects. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Well, based on just the introduction alone, Eric, you went back a lot farther than I did. Um, <laughs> I'm the historian. The first mention I have is from 300 AD. So obviously Atlantis would have been before that. So That when, goes off into Toth yeah. and all of that. <laughs> when we talk about alchemy here, we're not talking about Magic the Gathering online in nah, any way, nah, nah. which is probably like a something I shouldn't say here. So uh, <laughs> in present company and all that. But uh, no, it's, it's you know, you, you've heard of alchemy. It's, it's basically in any role-playing game, a lot mm-hmm. of fantasy books. But just simply, you know, simply put, it's, it's the, you know, making potions and, and whatnot. And, of course, at some point in time, alchemists stumbled upon the idea of the Philosopher's Stone, a mythical alchemical substance capable of turning base metals, such as mercury or lead, into gold and silver. It is also referred to as the elixir of life, the tincture, the powder, and some alchemists say it could even uh, have been used to achieve immortality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have this, this, this item, and, and to be fair, you know, when we say Philosopher's Stone, I'm sure most people automatically associate it with Harry Potter and the, the Philosopher's Stone. Well, in America, we say Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. The original English title is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's, Philosopher's Stone. Stone. Correct. Good point. And they even reference Nicholas Flamel in that, in that book, which I have information here about Nicholas Flamel later on, too. So, I mean, she did do some research when she was writing the book. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if you're going to go all the way back to the the... Atlanteans. I mean, that predates anything I'm going to start with. <laughs> so for, for many centuries, this was like the most sought after goal in alchemy and was the central symbol of the mystical terminology of alchemy. And it basically symbolized perfection at its finest enlightenment, heavenly bliss. Efforts to discover the secrets of the Philosopher's Stone were known as the magnum opus or the great work of alchemy. And the earliest known written mention of the Philosopher's Stone is in the Shirok Meta by Zosimos of Panopolis in 300 AD. Alchemical writers assign a much longer history to the Philosopher's Stone, which I think Eric will, will elaborate on a little later. An anonymous author of the Gloria Mundi in 1620 claims that the history of the Philosopher's Stone could go all the way back to Adam. 
and that Adam acquired this knowledge of, of the Philosopher's Stone directly from God and was said to have been passed down through the biblical patriarchs, that would explain the longevity of a lot of the lifetimes of those people talked about in the Bible. Now, the theoretical roots describing the stone's creation can be traced back to Greek philosophy, where the alchemists would later use classical elements in the concept of the anima mundi and creation stories presented in texts like Plato's Timaeus as analogies for their process. Now, according to Plato, the four elements are derived from the common sources or prime materia, the first matter, associated with chaos. So, you know, all life, all that we know came from, from chaos. And there's a lot of mythologies that, that say that. Uh, the prime materia is also the name the alchemist assigned to the starting ingredient for the creation of the Philosopher's Stone. And the importance of the prima materia has been, you know, just continues throughout the history of alchemy. Uh, even in the 17th century, Thomas Vaughn wrote, The first matter of the stone is the very same as the first matter of all things that prima materia. Now, in the Byzantine and Arab empires, early medieval alchemists built upon the works of Zosimos, and the alchemists from these empires, they were just fascinated by the concept of metal transmutation and often attempted to carry out this process. The 8th century Muslim alchemist Jabir ibn Hayyan analyzed each classical element in terms of four basic qualities. And I'm going to use a word here that some people are uncomfortable with. I'll be fair. Fire was considered to be hot and dry. Earth was cold and dry, water was cold and moist, moist, and air was hot and moist, moist. And in Hayyan uh, just theorized that every metal, every everything was a combination of these four principles: hot, cold, dry, and moist, moist. And so, yeah, keep repeating there. That makes it better. <laughs> so from this premise, it was he reasoned that you could transmute one metal to another just simply by rearranging these basic qualities. Now, how do you rearrange whether a thing is, I was going to say hot or cold, but you apply heat or, or cool, you know, um, dry or moist. I mean, moist. add water. <laughs> <laughs> so he believed anyway that you could rearrange these basic qualities and that the change needed to be mediated by a substance, which of course would be that prima materia. He here, it, eventually the Greeks would call it Zerion, or the Arabs would call it the al-Iksir, uh, from which, of course, seems obvious, the origins of the word elixir come from. Makes sense. The al-Iksir. It was considered to exist as a dry red powder made from the, made from the Philosopher's Stone, and the, the powder would be, be, uh, would be considered the most crucial component of, of this process of transmutation. In the 11th century, there was debate among the Muslim chemists uh, on whether the transmutation of substances was even possible, with a leading opponent being the Persian polymath Avicenna. And he discredited the theory of transmutation of substances by saying, those of the chemical craft know well that no change can be effected in the different species of substances, though they can produce the appearance of such change. Now, legend says that the 13th century scientist and philosopher Albertus Magnus, who also investigated minerals, he studied philosophy, and conducted experiments in non-organic chemistry. Now, he is said to have discovered the Philosopher's Stone. He does not confirm or deny this in any of his writings, but he did record that he witnessed the creation of gold by transmutation. In 1382, Nicolas Flamel, a French bookseller and notary who lived in Paris, claimed to have transformed lead into gold after decoding an ancient text. With the help of a Spanish scholar, familiar with the mystic Hebrew text known as the Kabbalah, which Kabbalism is kind of a thing, and I believe Madonna followed that for a little while. Um, but it's just sort of a, a Jewish mysticism. Now, of course, he had his own doubts as to whether he had in fact discovered this secret. There were doubts as to whether or not Nicholas Flamel had actually discovered the secret of transmutation. But it is documented that Flamel did become considerably wealthy around the time it is claimed that he found the, the secret. That was before he gave it to Dumbledore to lock it away in Grinwald's <laughs> bank. Uh, now, Flamel did donate much of his money to charity. And, and like you just referenced, of course, you know, the story of Flamel was incorporated into Harry Potter, where, like I said, in, in the nice UK. Touch. Nice touch. In the UK, it's called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Now, there's a 16th century Swiss alchemist, Paracelsus, who believed in the existence of Alkahest, which he thought to be an undiscovered element, uh, from which all other elements were simply derivative forms. So, sort of his own Philosopher's Stone. And he believed that, you know, really that was the Philosopher's Stone in his mind. English philosopher Sir Thomas Brown 
in his spiritual testament, Religio Medici, identified the religious aspect of the quest for the Philosopher's Stone when he declared, The smattering I have of the Philosopher's Stone, which is something more than the perfect exaltation of gold, hath taught me a great deal of divinity. So he even associated this back to, you know, his faith and the belief in the spiritual, which could go all the way back to, you know, this secret of, you know, being disclosed to Adam by God. A mystical text published in the 17th century called the Mutus Liber appears to be an instruction manual for creating a philosopher's stone. And it is called a wordless book. And it was simply a collection of 15 illustrations that supposedly broke down how to create the philosopher's stone. Now, you know, with the philosopher's stone, as Bill's kind of already leading us down, a lot of people are scoffing. They may laugh. They're, they're thinking, you know, this is, this is a myth. It doesn't exist. Just to prove how serious that was taken, there are countless examples, but I'm just going to say Sir Isaac Newton, for one, is known, you know, most notably for his contributions in astronomy, physics, mathematics. He also spent 30 years of his life devoted to alchemy with an obsession of the Philosopher's Stone. He even went as far as to make his own translations and record them of the Emerald Tablet, which these two are very closely, I think, tied. You have to have one, basically, to have the other in many beliefs. But Isaac Newton's translations of that is still studied today by people who study alchemy. So Bill opened up in the beginning of this, you know, alchemy, we now hear a lot of in like fantasy role-playing games and, and, you know, online games. And it's, it's kind of lost its roots, so to speak. But alchemy was a very real thing and arguably still today. It had early roots in, in what became known as science. We just didn't understand a lot of it back then. So now, like we do so much in society today, we relabel stuff. And you know now, a lot of people, I think, did that because they don't want to be associated. Science did not come from alchemy, you know, kind of deal, or chemistry did not come from alchemy in more specifics. Well, we had to find a way to explain the things that we couldn't understand. Yes. And so... And, and I don't mean to offend, but religion is part of that, too. We had to explain the things we couldn't understand. Yes. Science, of course, grew out of all these early primitive fields. You know, it used to be once upon a time that when a person behaved a little erratically, you drilled a hole in their head to let the demons out. Yeah. yeah. And we figured out that, you know, chemical imbalances and things like that. So, yes, like any rational scientist would hesitate to be like, oh, no, like we, alchemy. Well, but, same but, way yeah, with those, like those, medicines, you know, it's yeah. like. The old witches and hags and stuff that you hear, they went out and gathered herbs well, from their stuff. Well, that has nothing to do with Native, Native with, Americans chewed on willow with, bark. With medicine. Yeah, you know? Native Americans chewed on willow bark to alleviate pain, and now we know that that's part of how you make aspirin. Yeah. So, so we've just relabeled stuff. So I just wanted to insert that in there. The Philosopher's Stone, alchemy, you know, this stuff was at least presumed very real to a point where very serious scientific minds of the time were devoting a large portion of their lives to the study of it. So there's that. I'll let Bill kind of continue. So the Philosopher's Stone, is, as I've discussed it, is sort of the European ideas of it and, 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 you know, from the Middle East. But other regions have their own sort of version of the Philosopher's Stone, if you will. Uh, the equivalent of the Philosopher's Stone appears in Buddhism and Hinduism and known as the Sintamani or uh, referred to as the Parismani. In Mahayana Buddhism, the Shintamani is held by the Bodhisattvas and other highly ranking, you know, spiritual members of, the, of their religion. As also seen carried upon the back of the Lung Ta, the wind horse. And by reciting the Daharani of Chittamani, Buddhist tradition maintains that one who attains the wisdom of the Buddhas is able to understand the truth of the Buddhas and turns afflictions into enlightenment, you know, is, is so by, by being under, by understanding the Chittamani, you know, you, you can achieve these things. And so it's sort of an, an enlightenment, you know, an, an advancement of your, your, your being. It is also said to allow one to see the holy retinue of Amitabha and his assembly upon one's deathbed. Now in Hinduism is connected with the gods Vishnu and Ganesha, and in, in the Hindu traditions, it's depicted as a fabulous jewel, which a lot of people sort of associate the Philosopher's Stone as being a gem of some sort. Right. 
and it is often in the possession of the Naga king or on the forehead of the Makara. The Yoga Vasistha, written in the 10th century AD, contains a story about the Philosopher's Stone, uh, in which, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up the name here, it's a, it's a Hindu name, Jnaneshwar wrote a commentary with 17 references to the Philosopher's Stone, which explicitly transmutes base metals into gold. So there's this this you know reference That's to the that. True definition, if you will. Yeah. Another another depiction of the Philosopher's Stone is in the Shyamantaka Mani, which according to Hindu mythology is a ruby, and it is uh, capable of preventing all natural calamities such as droughts, floods, and etc. around its owner, as well as the ability to produce about 170 pounds of gold every day. That's a lot. Now, that's a lot of dry history to explain how we get to this. Now, what does the Philosopher's Stone do? What is it? What is it? What, what is the purpose of it? We've kind of touched on it a little bit. The most commonly mentioned properties are, of course, the ability to transmute base metals into gold or silver. Uh, does have the ability to heal all forms of illness and prolong the life uh, of any person who consumes even a small part of the Philosopher's Stone diluted in wine. Other properties include the creation of perpetually burning lamps. Now, I want to interrupt you there because I'm going to get into some things. You said diluted crystal or gem. Yeah. Most gemstones don't dilute or separate, but in... Not every tradition says it's a gem. Yes, but in where I'm going to go with this, just remember this little insert. (laughs) Other properties include the creation of perpetually burning lamps, like I said. The transmutation of common crystals into precious stones and diamonds, reviving dead plants, creation of flexible or malleable glass, and the creation of a clone or homunculus, which if you're unfamiliar, a homunculus is sort of a little artificial creation. Uh, You would call it a golem if you're familiar with D&D terms or, or, you know, Jewish mysticism. Just a little creature that's created under your control. Now, the descriptions are numerous and varied. Uh, some say that it is a common fa- substance found nearly everywhere, mm-hmm. but unrecognized and unappreciated for its power. Mm-hmm. According to alchemical texts, the stone of the philosophers comes into varieties, prepared in almost identical method. There is white for the purpose of making silver and red for the purpose of making gold, with the white being a less matured version of the red. Some ancient and medieval alchemical texts leave clues to the physical appearance of the stone, uh, specifically the red stone, which is most common, but is often said to be orange, like a saffron color, or red when ground into powder. Now, in a solid form, it is sort of an intermediary color between red and purple, and or transparent and glass-like. It's said that its weight would be heavier than the equivalent amount of gold, so it seems like a very dense very stone. Very dense, heavy. It is soluble in any liquids, supposedly, and in, but incombustible in fire, cannot be burned. Some suggest that the stone's descriptors are sort of a metaphor. Some say different names and attributes are assigned to the stone, are not actually, you know, they're, they're interpretations of original texts. Some have different speculations about the composition, the source. Certain people have said that, you know, it's certain metals, certain plants, certain rocks, chemical compounds, bodily products such as hair and urine, maybe even eggs. And then the conspiracy theorists are going to say a lot of this is intentionally, yeah, intentionally muddied water to keep it as a secret. A Justice von Liebig stated that it was indispensable that every substance accessible should be observed and examined. Well, I think ultimately, you know, Bill asked the question, you know, what is the Philosopher's Stone? You know, why, why are people so interested in it? And obviously, he listed several good things here. And again, the Philosopher's Stone and the Emerald Tablet are very closely related. I think ultimately what draws people in is that secret urge to live longer. The the fountain of youth, the elixir of life. We well, see, all you attribute it to extended life, but I'm of the other like the metals to gold. There's definitely that that innate human greed, I guess you could say. True. I mean if you found a way I when they say money is the root of all evil or whatever, money's not going to solve your problems. People that say that most commonly have a have lot of money. money. <laughs> most of my stress in life would go away if I just had more money. <laughs> touche, touche. But where I was going was that as people were longing for something, whether it be greed, whether it be extended life or immortality, there's a point we all reach in our lives 
And, you know, I'm starting to get that point. I, I just hit the big 53 here last week or so. We all realize we're not getting out of this game alive. And this is where the roots of makeup have even come because people will want to apply something to make them feel and look younger. Well, and I believe you sort of touched on that a little bit in our previous episode. Yes. When we talked about the Count of St. Germain and the secrets that he had where he- With alchemy. Applied makeup to mm-hmm. make women look younger and, 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 and I yeah, mean, used alchemy to do that. I hate to be this guy, but I mean, what woman would not want to be put, you know, put on makeup and, and their, their guy say, oh- you look so much younger. I mean, that, that's what we all are striving for. It could be a little sexist, there. It could be a Come little on. sexist. Sorry there. But <laughs> Bill, would you like to try this makeup? And I'll tell you how much younger you look. I mean, I've just come to terms with the fact that I'm going to look old <laughs> I'm, regardless. I'm embracing my salt and pepper hair. It's like I worked hard to get Well, here. I was going to say, we're sitting here looking at each other and you got more color in your hair than I do. And uh, yeah, yeah. You're just a little older than me. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Emerald Tablet. It is... Again, much like the Philosopher's Stone, can be described to exist out of many different materials, many different sizes, many different meanings. Uh, I'm going to go with the most common. I will use those words cautiously. Approximately four foot in length and three foot wide. So this is not a small tablet. It should not be something that is easily lost. Uh, you know, over four foot or right about four foot by three foot. There is an ancient Egyptian Asteric document named the Emerald Tablet. It is considered the foundation of Hermetic philosophy. It is attributed to Hermetes Tres Megatis. It was highly regarded by Islamic and European alchemists of the basis of their art form, the foundation, if you will, of the art form. Medieval and early modern alchemists associated the Emerald Tablet with the creation of the Philosopher's Stone because that is one of the things that it held with it, along with this vast amount of knowledge. Also, it mentions in there with the Philosopher's Stone, to Bill's point, the production of gold, not just longevity of life. And it is a guide that the most ancient wise men have passed down in order to help us find wisdom that they once possessed. The famous phrase, as it is above, so below comes. That's where this text comes from. It essentially means there is an outer universe, the macroism, and there is an inner universe, the microism. The quote is referring to different dimensions of ourselves. We exist in multiple dimensions, compromising our physical bodies, our minds, and our spirits. It's believed by many, and it is possible that we ourselves are multidimensional beings with multifaceted thoughts. What we see, what we feel, what we taste and experience are the results of nothing more than our thoughts, consciously or unconsciously, positive or negative. Whatever we think, or some would say what you put out, comes back to us. This is all part of that belief of the Emerald Tablet. If we love ourselves, others will also love us. If we respect ourselves, others will If we think we are attractive and confident, then others will also think that. We are what we think we are. Our outer reality is an expression of our inner thoughts, our emotions, and therefore we have the potential to elevate, some would say, our vibrations, our abilities, by refining our thoughts. Basically, it goes back to be positive. Surround yourself with positivity. Surround yourself with positive people. That is all part of the teachings and of the followings of the Emerald Tablet. The Emerald Tablet states that like the sun, who can project vibrant light and energy out and around it, we too can produce the same vibrant light and energy from ourselves and cast that out. Ultimately, we as individuals transform ourselves into like that of the sun, and the sun is considered gold by a lot of old ancient peoples. You know, the sun was made out of gold and jewelry and pieces, but the sun itself was considered gold. And this is the basis of the teachings of the Emerald Tablet that would later be labeled as alchemy or the making of gold and ultimately describing the philosopher's stone. Now, I'm going to take this back to ancient Egypt because that's probably the first most well-documented spot that we can connect up. And in particular, 
with a Egyptian deity that some may or may not be familiar with, and that is Toth. Now, the Emerald Tablet is believed by most to have been written by Jehutne, more commonly known as Toth. Toth had many names. Toth was a very important deity worshipped far before the age of the pharaohs, which would mean before 5000 BC. Toth was the god of magic, the god of wisdom, the god of the moon. He was usually depicted as a man with a head of an ibis, or a birdman with a very long, thin beak, for those of you who are not familiar with an ibis. We can thank Toth for creating writing and even hieroglyphics in Egypt. But most of you didn't realize that, but he is considered the inventor of all of that that we now study and learn most of our history from on ancient Egypt. Toth even wrote the Book of the Dead. He helped invent science, religion, philosophy, and, of course, alchemy. Some even give Toth credit for creating astrology, mathematics, and civilized government, and even the alphabet. Talk about an overachiever. Toth, however, really wasn't a god. Heck, he wasn't even Egyptian. He arrived in Egypt many thousands of years ago, before the age of the pharaohs, bringing with him his knowledge and wisdom from that of his own country. Because you see, most people, if you research Toth, he is believed to be from Atlantis. Now, Plato describes Atlantis as being divided into ten kingdoms, each with its own government, its own rulers, and its own purpose. One of these kingdoms was the island of Undal, which was the Atlantean center for science and philosophy. Now, Toth was born 36,000 years ago on the island of Undal, in the city of Kadora, which was a city of scientists and scholars and priests. Toth was trained by his father, Totme. As a young child, all the way through adulthood, he was trained by his father. Now, Totme was a very important person in Atlantean culture. He was one of what was be, would be considered the children of light. Here we have the reference back to sun again. They were believed to be an advanced race, not a deity, not a god, but an advanced race that chose to live alongside the humans, providing the humans with technology and teachings. Now, some have said these creatures possibly were extraterrestrial, or possibly even the Anunnaki. So while they were not gods, you can see how with all of this knowledge they could certainly appear to be. Now, Toth's father, Tutme, was actually the keeper of the great temple, which means he was the messenger who carried knowledge to the humans from all the other children of the light. But these creatures, as stated before, were not gods or immortals. They were born and they died. Yet here we have Toth, who was recorded to be at least 36,000 years. And you may be scratching your head wondering, well, isn't that close to immortality? There was a, the greatest of all Atlanteans by the name of Horlet. He actually created the ten kingdoms that I mentioned that made up Atlantis. Toth was noticed to exceed all of his father's teachings and came with an open mind to Horlet, the greatest of all the Atlanteans, where he was taken in by Horlet and considered one of the wisest of all the days, and he earned the nickname called the Dweller. Now, Toth once again soared in all of Horlet's teachings of wisdom, and after many years he was shown what was called the Halls of Amante, to which, by entering, literally gave the abilities of immortality to all who dare enter. Therefore, we have Toth, the exclusion, who does become an immortal. So, as so the deity that wasn't a god was essentially now made immortal, and he became known as one of the children of the light. Now, these children of the light lived a long life and then would reinvent themselves to live their next life and the next life and the next life. Chapter after chapter, they were there as watchers, teachers, and mentors. This could be where some religions gets the thoughts of reincarnation. Now, there is a time when Toth leaves Atlantis. Atlantis was destroyed by a great flood, but it was predicted by the children of the light beforehand, and Toth was chosen to depart the city before the flood to go forth and establish colonies across the world. It is said that he traveled to several areas of the world to help spread technology. There is one such colony in South America, another in Central America, yet still another in the land called Kim, but now we know that as Egypt. Now, guess what they all have in common? Pyramids. 
big old pyramids that still baffle us today on how the people of that time frame could possibly move such size horrendous stones and construct these pyramids with such precision at that time frame. Slavery. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Yet be so far apart from one another at this time frame. You know, we have South America, we have Central America, we have Egypt, vast hundreds of thousands of miles apart. How did these people approximately at the same time all decide to build pyramids? How did they gain knowledge? How did they gain all of this information possibly pa passed on by the keepers of the light or Toth in, in particular? Now, regardless, Toth in his travel records his wisdoms onto what is now known as the Emerald Tablet. Now, some say it was made of a green crystal. Others say it was a type of green glass. Still others say it was a metal called orcalcum. Orcalcum was a rare green metal that, according to Plato's writings, was mined exclusively from one place, Atlantis. So here on this tablet, Toth recorded the secrets of the universe, including the key to immortality, in which he had just learned himself. This artifact would become the foundation stone to ancient Egyptian alchemy. Starting to see how everything is linked together here? Now, Toth would reinvent himself as the other children of the light did, living another lifetime, yet upon another lifetime, being born in or around Egypt for many centuries, sharing his wisdom with a select few. But occasionally, he would feel himself being called or needed in a different area of the world. In one incident, it took him to ancient Greece with the artifact of the Emerald Tablet making its first appearance in thousands of years. Now, today, the Emerald Tablet is thought to contain 24 different stances. A stance, by the way, is like a sentence or a subject, a paragraph, possibly. One of those is about immortality. It is also rumored to have been written by this Hermes Tresmegeus, which some believe is a mix of the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Toth, or even better explained, a reincarnated version of Toth himself. Now, Hermetesmegis is also the author of a group of texts called the Hermetica. It is here we get the concept of Hermeticism, a spiritual belief on thriving and living with all things in the universe. Hermeticism is influenced by many, many secret societies, including, of course, the Freemasons, the Rotocrucians, and the Order of the Black Sun, just to name a few. There is a secret society also known as the Golden Dawn that emerged in the late 19th century. Note that word gold in there again, the Golden Dawn. I'm telling you all this is spiderwebbed, one to another. It's like a bad bunch of dominoes when one falls. Now, many members of the Golden Dawn uh, that you might recognize as W.B. Yeats, Alistair Crowley, Arthur Conan Doyle, just to name a few. We're going to jump forward kind of into a more present time frame. 2011, March 11th, 2011 to be precise, a mysterious free downloadable book appears anonymously under the name The Book of Aquarius, Alchemy and the Philosopher's Stone. On the first page it was written, the age of secrets is over. There is no need for mystical language or metaphor. This book contains no hidden meaning or codes. Everything is stated plainly and directly. So now anyone who wanted to create their version of the Philosopher's Stone, allegedly, could essentially do so with these directions, much like a recipe from a cookbook. The Book of Aquarius looked legit. Here was 165 pages. It referenced 149 alchemic texts that were spread over at least a thousand years. Many of these were quite rare, some of them one of a kind, yet the directions indeed were long and tedious, a process, yet anyone who had the time and desire could essentially follow them. What is so amazing about the recipe for the Philosopher's Stone is really only one ingredient, and we all have it in us. Any guesses? Did, did I mention it earlier, Eric? You did. Well, just for the record, if you go to um, globalgrayebooks.com, you can download your free copy of the Book of Aquarius. Bada-bing! And uh, I believe Eric is about to gross us out a little bit. What is the one item that is needed? allegedly, to create a philosopher's stone that each of us has in us? It's urine, pee, yellow gold. 
Shall I go on? The well, anom- that is a messed up take on the whole Beverly Hillbillies thing. <laughs> the anonymous contributor to this online forum page asked for no money, anything particularly in return he did not ask for, except for others to share this with as many people as they could, for he was fearful that it would be removed. Now, the contributor would sometimes post in a forum page that actually came birthed out of this to help anyone that was attempting to make the Philosopher's Stone. Now, I got to be honest, Bill. Obviously, we were both around in 2011 very well and on active on the internet. I don't remember this. I, I don't. Like, this is the first I've heard of it. Not, I, now, that's not to say I'm not going to go home and download that book. Like, yeah, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do and, that. And start collecting your pee. And start saving my pee. <laughs> But I don't remember this. For this purpose, I mean. But in the research, folks, I'm not kidding. This seems to have been a real thing that happened in 2011. This guy posted this book, free downloads, didn't ask for any money, nothing. People, of of course, they scoffed at it. They laughed at it. I don't know how I missed something like that. I don't either. I don't remember it. This is right up our alley. Come on. But even scientists and scholars that went back and studied this, this downloadable book, there, there was one individual, and I didn't catch his name, who had one of these very elusive, thought to be one copy. And he's like, this dude quoted out of my book. It's been locked in my safe for like, you know, 30 plus years. So this, whoever this guy was, I mean, he seemed to know his toth. I dare not say poop, but he knew his pee. <laughs> I had to do that. Sorry. Oh, Eric. <laughs> Might have to edit that out. It could be, it, it could be tough. It could be. Apparently, there were several, many, that uh, started experimenting with this. And as I said, it was very tedious. You had to collect urine. The Golden Dawn cult that I had mentioned, or religious group, said uh, this was part of those teachings. Because, Wasn't Aleister Crowley associated with them? Yes, I actually mentioned him. Dawn apparently is the best time to collect your gold. Uh, and it, it wasn't, it's not like a one time, Hey, I, I got a vial of pee, so I'm going to go make a philosopher's stone. It was something that you had to continually collect over a period of, I think no less than a year. That's a lot of pee. Uh, that's a lot of pee. And you had to constantly keep it at a certain temperature and filter it and you're adding new to it. And eventually I'll, I'll cut down to the chase. You, you filtered it to a point where it became a first almost like a tar-like substance, black, and then you changed the temperature and the filtration, and it started to crystallize and turn white, and essentially would come out as a cloudy diamond-looking crystal slash gem of good old pea. Now, I've used the word recipe several times in this. And I told you, I interrupted you, and I said, we're going to talk about a crystal that (laughs) dissolves in water. Oh, dude. How do you think you use the Philosopher's Stone? (laughs) Well, you don't clutch it in your hand, folks. No, no, no. You eat it. (laughs) You eat the pea that you have been collecting and crystallized for, you know, a year to two years. And on the forums, different people were sharing, sharing pictures. You know, hey, my pee looks funny. It's black. It's charcoal. It's too dark. It's too this. It's too that. And this guy for many years would come in and, oh, well, you've probably, you know, lowered the temperature a little bit. You need to filter this out, do that. I don't know. Maybe you ate something acidic the night before when you collected the new urine specimen, all of this stuff. And then just like he predicted, poof, the plug was pulled. The forums went down. He vanished. The book vanished for a period of time. However, Bill just looked up and you can now find that. I was speechless. And you say, what in the world? Why would anybody collect pee if you study? And I did. I went back and looked in alchemy. There are certain things in alchemy that are used quite commonly, at least back in the medieval days. That was urine, sweat, hair, and blood, which Bill also mentioned a bloodstoned. Well, you philosopher's stone is possibly or red. If I remember correctly, a lot of that stuff you used in the creation of the homunculus, which I referenced Mm -hmm. the little golem. Yeah. So all of this is a very bad spider web, uh, all connected. Some people will speculate, you know, who, who was it that took this down? Who pulled the plug on this? This guy put a lot of work into this. He shared this book. He had collected it from multiple, multiple sources. 
some people, of course, the conspiracists are going to say, well, the government did it because the government doesn't want you to live forever. The government doesn't want you to have all this money, uh, you know, or the ability to create gold. Somebody suggested maybe it was someone who followed the directions and created their <laughs> philosopher's stone and decided, I don't want anybody else to have this. So we may never know who actually pulled it. That was disgusting, Eric. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. That will never leave your mind. Covered this topic. Yes. So yellow gold. Maybe something of a palate cleanser, if you will. <laughs> we should move on to some headlines. My headline comes from June 2023, also long ago at all, just uh, a few weeks. Australia, a group or a company by the name of Southern Cryonics, is newly approved. Fifty people have volunteered and signed up to be the, the first group of Australians to be frozen at their time of death in a new facility being built in the Southern Cryonics Laboratory. This is in a small rural town named Holbrook. After seven years, they have finally gained government approval for the trial testings of the first 50 volunteers. And the hopes is, of course, that these 50 people will be able to be revived at some point in the future, whether it be 10 years or 100 years from now, and be able to live again in some capacity, whether uh, they need to be cured of a disease or old age or possibly their, their minds uploaded into a computer or whatever that thought of future may be, just the hopes that future medical and scientific technologies will advance that point. They have stalled that last-ditch effort of youth, of immortality, to try to gain. Now, their bodies are going to be frozen in containers of liquid nitrogen at negative 190 degrees Celsius. The chambers will then be vacuumed of any air contaminations of, uh, around the body. And in a theory, this body and these conditions that it must be kept at will preserve the body quite well, really an unlimited amount of time, providing those temperatures and conditions are maintained. The volunteers are asked to pay the price of $150,000 for this procedure, as it's being called, as well as $350 a year maintenance and a subscription fee. Because, I mean, hey. Well, you got to maintain it. You got to maintain it or you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot here. Ironically and shockingly, at least to me, many of the Australian life insurance companies are willing to pay for this. Hmm. I wasn't real sure how I felt about that. <laughs> so they can get your money later. I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure, but it's like, oh, $150,000? Yeah, $150,000 to you, hundred. They do not want to pay, however, the three hundred and fifty per year. So that falls back on the family. Uh, now, cryogenics are actually uh, that—that's something to leave your family. Here's a bill. Here's a bill. <laughs> uh, we hope we have the solution in ten years and not a hundred years, because you're going to be paying a long time for many generations. Cryogenics are actually natural. They already exist in natural. Oh, with yeah. creatures. I was going to say in the in the wild, was it uh, frogs? Yes, and then um, turtles, some types of fish. They can be totally froze solid, which yeah. you know it explains like frogs and turtles, especially here in Missouri, really anywhere. But you know, shallow ponds freeze solid for the winter, totally froze solid block of ice, and then gradually dethaw and just jump right off like nothing ever happened. But it should be noted that you know that was with a lot of amphibians. While some scientists and doctors do have high hopes for this procedure being successful, others are not so quick to believe into it. And it's something that's been going on for, honestly, past decades in science and laboratories. I will say I, I, I found it interesting. The fine print that Southern Cryonics has in their epidavit, their, their contract that you're signing, is that this procedure at Southern Cryonics is stated to be a burial site. To be fair, unless they've achieved some level of expertise that I'm not familiar with. I know that when cells freeze, they rupture because water expands when it freezes. And that's always been sort of the big hurdle for cryogenics. So I'm wondering if they've, if they've solved that. Hmm? And I would say that you'd have to treat the site as a burial site just to be well, on the safe side. if you had to put a label on it. Yeah, what else do you call it? What could it? I mean, yeah. Cold storage facility. Cold storage facility. Walk-in <laughs> freezer. Uh, well, Man. So there's that. A lot of people don't walk into it, but. <laughs> uh, yeah. These people volunteered for it. But uh, so, anyhow, that's my headline. 
Well, I went with some weird science um, from Reader's Digest, May 19th, 2023. 25 amazing science facts that are weird, wild, and true by Elizabeth Yuko. Now, I cut the list down significantly. I think I just hit on the 10 that I found the most interesting. So we'll just go through these. It, it'll, it goes by pretty quickly. Number one, the human stomach can dissolve razor blades. Not that I'm advocating the eating of razor blades. Oof. Please don't try that. But acids are ranked on a scale from 0 to 14. With the lower the pH, the stronger the acid. I think we all learned that in high school. Human stomach acid is typically a 1.0 to a 2.0, which means it's a very, very strong acid. So according to a study published in the journal Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, which sounds fascinating, scientists found that the thickened back of a single-edged blade dissolved after only two hours of immersion in stomach acid. Wow. So imagine that. That's, that's pretty harsh. Uh, number two, a cloud can weigh roughly a million pounds. According to the United States Geological Survey, the average cumulus cloud can weigh up to a million pounds. Because of all the um, water, it's to roughly as heavy as the world's largest jet when completely full. And, and as you referenced, that does have to do with rainfall and water. So, number three. They look so fluffy, They though. do. And they will kill you. <laughs> uh, number three, rats laugh when they're tickled. I think this has kind of made the rounds lately. But rats have the ability to laugh, and a video published by National Geographic demonstrates the rats responding positively to tickling, and they will even chase after a researcher's hand in a playful manner after being tickled. I had so not it's something seen they this. enjoy. I haven't seen the video. They yet like either. to be tickled. Number four, bananas are radioactive. I think a lot of people have heard this little factoid. Uh, they contain potassium, and since potassium does decay, that means the bananas are slightly radioactive. However, you would need to eat roughly 10 million bananas in a single sitting to die of banana-induced radiation poisoning. I've come close a couple times. I'm pretty but. <laughs> sure you're going to die of something else. So, uh, Number four, humans have genes from other species. Uh, we do think of ourselves as the superior beings on this planet. Uh, but in reality, our genome does consist of as many as 145 genes that have jumped from bacteria, fungi, uh, however you want to say it, and other single-celled organisms and viruses, according to a study published in the journal Genome Biology. Uh, number six, it can rain diamonds on other planets. I've seen this little fact before. Ah. The atmospheres of Neptune, Uranus, and Saturn have such extreme pressures that they crystallize carbon atoms and turn them into diamonds, according to an uh, American scientist. Uh, how do we know this? Because researchers were able to recreate the conditions in a lab to prove that this occurs on Neptune and Uranus. 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 We'll, we'll say it right. Uranus. A little aside here, and I might have told this story before. When you leave Springfield, there's a, a billboard for the Uranus Fudge yes. Factory. And I always, al I get my almost fudge always. From Uranus. Well, I make the same joke that uh, it, the billboard just says, hey, there's big fun, right? And I always say, hey, I hear there's big fun in Uranus. <laughs> uh, anyway, but uh, uh, separately, researchers also speculate that it may rain as much as 2.2 million pounds of diamond on parts of Saturn. Okay, so if we went to Saturn. There would just be diamonds. Unlimited we're diamonds. We're just going to be walking in diamonds. Just, well. Why has nobody rich If there's enough pressure there? to create diamonds, it's enough that you're not walking around. You you become diamonds probably. But I mean, with all the rich people doing all this crazy wild oh, shit. I'm sure somebody's trying to figure it why out. Why are we not harvesting diamonds? Number eight, it's impossible to burp in space. When you burp on Earth, it's because gravity keeps the solids and liquids in the food you just ate down so that only the gas escapes from your mouth. In the absence of gravity, the gas cannot separate from the liquids and solids. Basically, burping turns into vomiting. Ugh. Uh, number nine, plastic can end up as vanilla flavoring. Now, researchers have figured out how to transform plastic bottles into vanilla flavoring with genetically engineered bacteria. According to a 2021 study published in the journal Green Chemistry, the demand for vanillin is growing rapidly, given that it's found in a wide variety of foods, cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, cleaning, and herbicide products. However, don't expect to be eating plastic bottle-created vanillin-flavored anytime soon, as the research only demonstrated that the conversion process is possible, but has not determined whether or not it's safe for human consumption. Please, listeners, do not eat the two-liter pop bottle that you have in front of you. It will and not taste like vanilla. As I'm reading here, apparently, I, I, I skipped number seven. I, I didn't have a number seven there. So we'll, we'll say this is number seven. About half of your body is bacteria. Experts estimated that the human body consists of 39 trillion bacteria uh, and roughly 30 trillion human cells, which is about a 1 to 1 1.3 ratio. So you're just 
almost half bacteria. Wow. And some people seem like more bacteria. You know, they might be. Uh, in the past, they thought it might be much more, it, it would be closer to like maybe a 10 to 1 ratio of bacteria to human. That's so, only a few people that we know. Yeah. And number 10, and this was my favorite, humans are capable of producing venom. Uh, believe it or not, while we do not currently produce venom, technically we could. And f- the, the, the biology is there. The code is in our DNA. It just isn't turned on. Well, you mentioned our stomach acid yeah. was so bad. So, I mean... All reptiles and mammals actually have this ability, according to an article published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, basically, everything you need to be a venomous creature is in your DNA. It, it just hasn't been activated, or it's been deactivated, as it were. So, a little bit of happenstance, a little genetic you know, glitch in the creation, and, and you could be a, a venomous creature. There could be venomous human. Wow. Interesting. Scary. Well, I mean, you go around biting people, then that might be a, something you want. I don't know. I don't bite a lot of people I, in my I, day-to-day. So. I truthfully feel we have checked a lot of boxes with this podcast. We, we're talking of eating crystallized peas. <laughs> we have talked about Uranus. We've talked no, about... Uh, no, not mine. Oh, no. oh, okay, not yours. <laughs> we've talked about diamonds on planets that no one is harvesting. We've, we've talked about venomous possibilities of human. We've checked a lot of boxes. We've covered a lot of weirdness. A lot of it was weirdness. a weird science episode. It was a weird science episode. It's one we hope you all have enjoyed. Maybe had a few chuckles and laughs. Raised a few eyebrows and uh, even hit rewind a couple times and say, did they really say that? Thanks for listening, everyone. We appreciate it. That's why I have to have so much to drink. My lips in, stick in roughly together. a one-hour episode, I cut out like two solid minutes of wow. us going um uh. Um, yeah. That's why we don't do this live. And I wanted to, like I said, I, I was gonna bring it in and just play it because it's just like um uh um um I thought it was funny. And that would exchange uh, that, and that would ex- and that would ex- I keep wanting to say exchange. Take three. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family. For allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much. <laughs>